Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Searching for Political Identity. I believe this is episode 134, and I do think that this is going to be, at least for me as the host personally, probably one of the best. And I say that not to put pressure on my guests, but because this guest is so good. He's just such a good communicator. He's such a good writer, such a great thinker. Uh, admittedly, I'm not all the way deep into his thoughts. That's why I'm talking to him. I'm a baby libra- I'm a baby maybe libertarian. That's what I've been yeah. calling myself. Um, but this gentleman is running for president, and he's very well known in the libertarian community. Uh, I guess one of the things we're going to talk about is why doesn't the libertarian party have even more notoriety? That's the wrong word, but more um, pull. Why are they still struggling, although they may be struggling and winning that fight? Anyway, my deal is, and I'll, I guess I'll talk to you, doctor, as I'm doing this intro. Mm-hmm. You may, you know, my name, this podcast is not catchy, but it is self-explanatory. And basically, I grew up in a progressive household. My dad is a big influence on me. His brother, my uncle Rick, was Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders' third hire in 2016 as a speechwriter. So that's the background, the family I come from. You may get that with your history. You may, you may be able to speak to them in a sense through this episode, which would be really helpful to me. But that's my deal. Always voting for Democrats, Obama twice, Hillary, and even Joe, because I thought Joe would just be like Trump minus the drama, which ended up not being the case. Then I end up in law school, graduated in 2022 because I was a little restless and bored at work. I'm a construction manager, wanted to understand the system a little more, go to law school, have an amazing time, learn about the system. And in my final year, I studied critical race theory. I took two electives, doctor from an amazing professor, but it was CRT and it was as controversial as CRT is. And it really threw me for a loop. More so than the material, which itself was quite controversial, were were the reactions to it from the students, the embrace of it. It was just so vehemently anti-capitalism, frankly, anti-white, just a whole can of worms that I say lit the fuse for me to start searching for for political identity, really called me to question stuff. And since starting the podcast, I get on Twitter, of course, right? That's what you do. And what did I do? I tripped and I fell into this libertarian community. And I'm starting to see it now and learn about it. And my thoughts on the people in the community are they're much more informed than I am. And this is one of my points. I have to admit that I am an I'm a low information voter. As smart as I am, I have a JD. I am a low information voter. I just admit it. Um So I have to give tremendous respect to the people in the libertarian community. They are knowledgeable. They know the issues. They know, they understand Assange. They understand the American empire. So anyway, it's been a interesting trip and I'm just at the beginning of it. And so that's me now. um, The, the value. So why I'm so attracted to libertarianism is because it's so principled. Here I am searching for this political identity. Identity politics, I don't like it. CRT was the ultimate manifestation of that. And then in comes libertarianism with its principles. You can correct me, doctor. I've only read Anatomy of the State. I've only read it, which is which is great, but I haven't done the reading. Um, so I need help, I need guidance, that's what I'm doing. But the understanding I have of libertarianism is taxation is theft, the state is, by definition, a monopoly on violence. Okay, voluntary exchange is the way to do life. Anti-war, no war. 
Um, these are these are very interesting principles. So, and there's a little bit of something for everybody, no matter where you come from. And so, most people still though don't know what libertarianism is in the mainstream. And they probably don't even know the big news globally with libertarianism, which was the election of Javier Millet in Argentina, and and self-described anarcho-capitalist, as is Dr. Rechtenwald. So I may be sitting here talking to the next president of the United States, the Javier Millet of America. It's, It's very possible. So with that interesting and tremendously strong introduction, I say thank you, doctor, for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So there are two main arguments I see for your campaign. That is the communication skills and your past as a Marxist. Okay. Yeah. Is that, is that correct? Is that right? Is that yeah. Right? I mean, I'm, there's a narrative element that comes from my experience. And uh, my argument is that gives me a particular advantage, actually, uh, mm-hmm. by, by virtue of the fact that I understand where people are. Yes. coming from and uh how they've been indoctrinated and so forth so that's one and then yes the the ability to uh see through status propaganda uh because i've done a lot of writing on it and uh i've treated this uh from a libertarian perspective in in five books now when when did this transition to libertarianism get completed when did when were you able to uh, okay now i can write about this stuff i say by two uh by the january of 2017 i was a libertarian whereas in the fall of 2016 i was a marxist wow that quick yeah so what so the big question what did it was it reading the big works no no it was uh it was an encounter it was an experiential uh Mm -hmm. Uh, an experiential encounter with uh, the people that I thought were really um, my 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 comrades. Really, I thought they were my comrades, but it turned out they were attempting to infringe my rights, and attempting to shut down my speech, attempting to police my thoughts. All of these things these people were trying to do, and I found them to be want to be totalitarians. I, I couldn't. Uh, I could no longer have any association with them. Mm. So that's why you said in another interview you did that you went from Marxist to civil libertarian to Mm -hmm. anarcho-capitalist. Right, exactly. So if the experience brought you to civil libertarianism, which I can understand and relate to, I was like in that critical race theory class going, no, 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 this doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound right at all. Then what got you to anarcho-capitalism? That's where the study came in, the reading. I did a deep dive into the literature. Uh, and we can't expect everybody to do that. So we have to be able to sum up what we learned. And uh, so it started with uh, Ludwig von Mises and then into Murray Rothbard and inclusive of um, Hans Hermann Hoppe and others, many other uh, theorists and thinkers, and also doing a lot of writing, uh, writing for the Mises Institute, uh, speaking for the Mises Institute, speaking for the Mises Caucus, speaking for other liberty organizations around the country at numerous events and finally being uh, i think versed you know fully versed in the in the libertarian principles and the theory and uh 
and uh and being being able to uh understand like what that how that interfaces with the leftist and totalitarian uh mindset of uh statism so it sounds to me like you and others that share your political beliefs think that we are in the ninth inning or is it the eighth or seventh inning of a game towards totalitarianism yeah it's it's uh it's very late it's incipient yeah we're looking at an incipient totalitarianism it's a lot of the features are already present uh and uh it's a matter of time uh and it's it's a matter of uh, what we might do uh to avert it uh, otherwise it's a matter of time what, what that will be uh, in a full throttled liber- uh totalitarian nightmare mm. and this is very much to do about the globalist agenda, or is this an internal American thing it's a, as well? It's, it's the globalist agenda, but it's being carried out vis-a-vis the various states. And uh, mm-hmm. it is inclusive of uh, some of the features of totalitarianism are not only, of course, the absolute uh, abrogation of rights, speech, and censorship, and... And, uh, the censorship of our, our our speech and our writing, uh, but also the double think, the gaslighting, the inversions of reality that are being uh, trying they're trying to put over on us, uh, the increase of statism in many respects that and the globalism feeds into this big time uh, because th- there is a great deal of uh, attempt. There's a huge attempt to make us into effective remote control subjects, really. Mm. I mean, just jump right to it. Yeah. So this idea that the state is nothing but a parasite. Yeah. How could I get my father or my uncle to digest that? Seriously. Yeah. Okay. So one, one way to look at it is what does the state produce? Is it a productive entity or element in society? Does it actually create anything? And the answer to that is going to be no. The state is not a productive force. It's not a productive entity. It creates nothing. So what then does it do? How does it survive? It has to survive off of the productive elements of society and by uh, expropriating their wealth uh, unto itself. So it is nothing but a parasite in that sense because it wouldn't exist without those productive members mm-hmm. of society. Mm-hmm. And it, it treats them as a host. It treats them as a parasite would a host. It's, it, 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 it just it thrives off of their wealth and production. Uh, taxation is, is expropriation of capital. Uh, from the produce productive classes or the productive members of society and into uh, the state itself, which then takes, in, in the case of the United States now, it takes our wealth and uses it to develop tools to oppress us and to surveil on us and to lie to us and to bomb other people using our money. Uh, it robs us and then uses that money to buy weapons or to, to send weapons or military aid 
to other countries. So, and it's uh, also, you know, surveilling on us as the uh, as the Julian Assange case now being so uh, highlighted here mm -hmm. in the news today. And uh, it it doesn't want the truth out. It's a secretive organization. Mm -hmm. It has all kinds of classified documents and does all kinds of nefarious things without any transparency at all. So we're looking at a state that's, uh, this is the largest, most powerful state that's ever existed. So we are reaching peak statism here. Uh, so that means we're, we're seeing the way the carcass that the state has attached itself to is actually suffering to the point of death almost. It's possible that it could kill the host if we don't get it off mm. of us. Mm. So perhaps it's not that interesting of a question, but is there no role? Is there no role then? There is no healthy relationship? It, maybe it's possible, but not under this dynamic. So we might as well blow it to hell and see what happens. Well, the, there's the minarchist view. And most of my uh, opponents in this race for the Libertarian Party are minarchists. They're not anarcho-capitalists like me. Uh, they think that the, the state is necessary to protect your rights and to keep the peace, to keep violent, you know, keep violent, keep violence from occurring to you. Well, I think that's ridiculous because the mm -hmm. state is the biggest infringer of rights there is. And it's the greatest source of violence in the world. So how would you expect, mm. by virtue of giving a monopoly uh, of violence to a particular organization, why would you expect them to mind your rights, protect your rights, and uh, and uh, preclude or uh, you know deter violence when it is committing violence on an unprecedented scale? I don't see how the state should be trusted, why we should have a monopoly mm -hmm. on force, why we should why we should have anybody violating uh, the non-aggression principle. And you mentioned libertarianism and what the foundations are. There's three things. That is self-ownership. That's number one. That is you own yourself uh, and you should be able to do with yourself what you will as long as two you don't violate the non-aggression principle that is aggress upon another person or their property. And then number three, of course, is property rights. Um, and that is whatever you make using yourself and whatever you've found in nature, uh, so-called, or in the world that isn't uh, owned, or whether whatever you create becomes your property too. This is very simple. It's a very simple philosophy. And attractive and principled. And that's why I'm thinking about it so many are i would assume so then there's no role for the state to enforce those rights because the minarchists or even the leftists will say the roads and there's an easy okay companies can build the fucking roads okay we got yeah, it yeah but what about enforcing the property rights the court system all private as well yes this can be done with private security firms and private insurance and private uh uh private uh arbitration courts private courts and they could compete and uh you know there would be rules between them of course and they would develop protocols and they would develop cultural assumptions or cultural continuity so there, there would not have to be the exact same culture in every particular community mm -hmm. this is another thing is I'm, I'm all about in my campaign is decentralization and that is uh, let people live 
how they want to and let them form communities of like-minded individuals who have certain values that are imposed on them by the state, uh, by government. And uh, that becomes self-government at that juncture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I could see the concern from the left being about equality, inequality. and But I guess the retort would be, look at the system now. I mean, do you think there's yeah. system inequality now? With, well, with, there's because I'm things. thinking about poor people not having the same access to as good systems. See, income inequality is a real red herring. Uh, I think that there is no guarantee for income uh, inequality, and there shouldn't be any guarantee for income equality or, you know, material equality. Uh, There's the, of course, the the abstract equality of of equality under law, and that would that would remain, and equality of rights. That would certainly remain, but there is no such thing as income uh, equality. So there will always be disparities and all attempts to reduce these disparities are oppressive and they're uh, usually constitute theft on the part of the state to redistribute wealth, uh, likewise ingratiating themselves to particular segments of society while robbing others. And this is really why the state has such power today because unconsciously a lot of people believe that there is a capitalist class that exploits the workers at the point of production that's the marxist language sure and that there has to be an entity that redistributes this wealth Mm -hmm. Uh, but this is a false uh false fixing the dynamic yes to to go in and arbitrate between these entities uh labor and capital and uh, that's really not, it's not true because the working class is not exploited at the point of production it, uh, on, mm. as a rule. But there is, there is, there is some types of labor that are exploitative if in fact there's less competition. When it becomes monopoly, then in fact you get exploitation. You get exploitation at the at, for, of the workers and you also get price gouging and things like that because you have no choice. And how does monopoly come about? It comes about vis-a-vis state, the state itself. It creates monopolies. Mm-hmm. The state creates monopolies. So this is one of the major sources of income inequality, but mostly even income opportunity inequality. That's the key. Uh, so there should be no guarantees of equality in any system. Any system that says that it can guarantee equality is simply lying. Uh, and it's false. It's a false, it's a false premise. Sure. And I think most people would say, Hey, we're not talking about precise equality. We're talking about approximate equality. Make sure we don't have extraordinary inequality, but your point may still remain on this. Yeah. On this subject, the leftists though might find appealing about the libertarian anarcho-capitalist platform is this idea the one that Kennedy is talking about. And so that you want to decouple corporate and state actors. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, you do want to decouple corporate and state actors. Uh, You want to, you know, disestablish corporatism or otherwise known as economic fascism. And, And Kennedy's right that you don't want economic fascism. 
but he's got the wrong approach to the problem. He's, he's approaching it from the wrong side of the equation. You have state plus corporations equal fascism or corporatism. Well, the only way to get rid of that is not by virtue of saying, you know, we're going to regulate it right. We're going to get the right people in there. We're going to make sure there's no revolving door between corporations and these regulatory agencies. The only way to do it is by getting rid of the regulators. You'll always have uh, regulatory capture if you have a state to capture. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So corporatism is a tool in the hands of the ruling class of the state. That's what it is. Hmm. And they want to extract resources from the population and fund wars. Is that the idea? Fund wars, fund their own growth, fund their because... own life livelihoods. Hmm. Basically, they want what everybody wants, which is increased wealth and power. I mean, most everybody wants to increase their wealth or have a, 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 an increase in in their ability to earn and uh, or or get. Uh, they just don't want to earn it. Uh, they want to do it by virtue of of robbery um, and murder. Um, so that's what the state has. It has a it has a monopoly on murder. It has a monopoly on exercising violence, um, and uh, that can't be good. In fact, nobody should be able to exercise violence, which is aggression against somebody. It's a violation of the NAP right. non-aggression principle. Yeah. So is this virulent, if that's the right word, anti-war sentiment in the libertarian community, is that a result of the non-aggression principle being applied globally? Or is there something else going on there? There, there's That's the principal part of it. It's, it's, a, it's an egregious violation of the non-aggression principle uh, in terms of its violence against other people, but it's a double, it's a double, it's a double um, vice. It's a double jeopardy because you're being robbed to pay for it. Um, so mm. there's two things going on there. One is the theft. And then the other is what the theft is being put to. And we don't want to kill people. We don't want the state to be authorized to exercise its prerogatives of uh, initiating force around the world any state right yeah it just occurs to me just kind of a, jumping to a different bullet point here that the constitution is a device to limit uh the infringements of, on people's rights from mm -hmm. the state mm -hmm. and the libertarian the anarcho-capitalist argument is to say not that we need to return back to that point, but we need to go further back in time. We need to go even further back and just delete the damn thing. I don't even. I'm not sure if it's going back because uh, mm. there hasn't. There have been cases of anarcho-capitalism very short-lived in terms of not because they failed, but because they were there was the state grew into or took over, like in the wild wild west, so-called. There was uh, before the state rolled out its. Uh, territorial uh, expansion into the West, there was an anarcho-capitalist uh, system. Right. You had uh, private property and you had private protection agencies, private courts, and so forth. And it actually worked better than after the state rolled in. That's when crime actually went up and, uh, and so mm. forth. Interesting. 
Yeah, so it's actually moving forward. If the founding fathers were coming out of this tyranny and they devised the system, it always blows my mind that these great thinkers didn't think to just disband, not even do a government. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a, a tension there. Uh, first of all, there was a tension between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, the ones who wanted a central government, a powerful central government, Hamilton and others, and those who wanted decentralization and the more local government. So there's another principle at work here is that the more local the government is to people, the freer they are. So that's why I am for decentralization, and that is a step towards full, full, full privatization, fully privatized society. It's just a step away from fully privatizing it. Think about this. If you had, like, a community that, you know, was basically autonomous in the sense that it had no central government imposing its uh, will on the people, its desiderata on, on the community, they would eventually see that this, the governance that they were uh, aiming at was being done privately in effect. And they would dissolve the necessity for a singular governmental entity because uh, they would see that property was being protected through, you know, first of all, through uh, a covenant between the members there and that there was no um, th there was no coercion going on and effectively they would get to the point where they don't need the state at all. Mm. Let's talk about the border for a second. And before we do that, let me mention Dave Smith, who I didn't know before November 4th of this year or last year. And why do I say that date? That's because that's when I saw him live doing a comedy show here in San Diego. Oh, nice. I, I just started dating. Um, it was actually my very first date off of a dating app with my now girlfriend. And she said, I like comedy, Google, boom, Dave Smith. Oh, he's a libertarian. Like, this sounds cool. Next thing you know, we're at the show. We love it. Super yeah, funny, super great. great. And it was another catalyst for me to dig deeper. And uh, so I've kind of been following the big names now. Him, I know he's endorsed you. Yes. And so I know there's a, like I said, I'm now in this online community for better or worse. And I think for better. And there's a very interesting debate going on between Dave, who it seems like is one of the preeminent thought leaders in the party mm -hmm. and several other people about the border. And it seems like the, the, the dispute is, should we have an open border? No, because that's the state imposing rules versus well yeah if we're going to have a state and there is such a thing as public property for the moment then we might as well have some reasonable regulations on it is that yeah the, the conflict is this that that before we have a fully private property society there's going to be something called so-called public property uh and that's that public property is actually controlled by the state whether that be uh the federal government in the case of the borders around the United States, uh, or in the case that, say, something would happen such that one of the states or two or three seceded around their particular perimeters. It's a, it's a difficult and cannot, it's a real conundrum. And uh, I, I want to preface this by saying there are only second best solutions here, that none of these are ideal, and even the open borders 
anarcho-capitalists who believe in open, you know, open borders and uh, that the, there should be no restrictions on movement, even they recognize that it's a second-best solution. Now, the minarchist open borders people do not recognize it as a second-best solution. They believe that you have to have, you, you need to have an, an equation between the free movement of goods and the free movement of people that you can't, to be consistent, you must have both the free movement of goods and people across borders because borders are arbitrary. They're imaginary lines drawn by the state. But here's the thing. The thing is that public property is rightly the property of people that paid for it. And likewise, allowing absolute ingress or complete openness of the border into so-called public property property actually violates the property rights of those who paid for that property that that's my position now they'll say in return they'll say well that's communist because you're saying that uh this private prop this public property is communally owned by the citizens and uh that you're relying on the will of the of the majority to enforce uh, the law the the border right mm -hmm. and that they'll also further go you'll have to use the state to keep these people wild so that's statist you know but the thing is the open border policy is statist too because it's it's a policy of the state and it's a policy that says we don't care that you've paid for this we don't care that we've robbed you for this. We're going to let the people come in as they will. And your rights about that property don't matter. You don't have any rights over that property. That's that's what it says. And I think that is a violation of their property rights. And they'll say, well, you're, you're relying on a communal uh, collective idea. ownership, collective but it's not ownership. communal. Yeah, they're saying it's a collective communal or communist viewpoint. I don't agree because there there have been and there certainly are joint stock companies where people own property co commonly. A large group of people have owned property and that's a corporation is, is one of those things too. Uh, so what I would say there is, look, it's a second best solution, but it's better than who, the question is, who do you want to restrict? Or who do you want to impinge on? And who do you want to uh, uh, effectively limit? And my argument is that the, the people that paid for this property are getting doubly screwed when you just allow anybody to come in without any checks. Right. So what I argue is something I think should satisfy both the open borders people and the restricted or closed borders people is invitation-only uh, immigration where the person who invites the, the immigrant uh, invites them and vouches for them financially so that if, in fact, there's damage to public property, then that person would have to, would have to pay. They probably have insurance to cover that. So they can invite as many people as they want as long as they're willing to carry that liability insurance so that that person's uh, actions don't uh, fringe upon 
that the ownership of that property by of others uh and also they would they would have insurance on the private property of other people too of course yeah maybe it's just because no, i'm kidding when i say this it's not just because i think you and dave smith are really cool and i want to be friends with you which i do but it does seem reasonable i mean it doesn't strike me as communistic to to say hey you all own this because yeah. you pay for it yeah and so we're going to manage it yeah, they think it's that they'll go on about how it's a communist or socialist idea. No, I don't see that status. I mean, okay, sure, but yeah, I so mean, is we, their policy status because they want to keep the government owning that property, and then they want the government to determine what's done with it, not the people who paid for it. Yeah. So how is that not status? Yeah. So yeah. I hope Jack Lloyd listens to this, and I hope you tag him, Jack Lloyd. Look him up on Twitter. He, he actually, wants- what's funny is he, he blocked me. I got a little bold and <laughs> I did something I shouldn't have done, which is I'm trying to curry favor with Dave and I, I'm joking. I'm really not, but you know, in my little way, I'm like, Oh, maybe you Dave like will- Dave better. That's fine. You're allowed. Yes. To like and Dave I, tw- and I said as such, I, I didn't say that. I said, Dave won the argument and I did it in a way that was a little, uh, demonstrative, probably unnecessarily. So I did winner Dave Smith round one, and the guy fucking blocked me. I was like, Yeah, what? that's Twitter. That's the way it goes, man. Yeah, that's a that's there, a lame there's no nobody has a right not to be offended. Yeah, and uh, that's too bad. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I I, I just uh, I and they think there's some deep uh philosophical point that I'm missing or that Dave's missing, and I think that they're, they're just wrong. They're just they're they're throwing up. What they do is they they throw up uh, more clauses on, on their argument as they go, and any mm. theory that requires additional auxiliary clauses is flawed. Mm. Interesting. Well, I'll stick with you guys uh, at least for the moment. Um, so, Social Security. If we could switch to that with the ten minutes that we have remaining, tell okay. me about Social Security, please. Well. One of my opponents, uh, Jacob Pornberger, believes that we should end it immediately, and that's it. So that means that anybody that's paid into this system will just be get nothing. So you've robbed these people over, say, 30, 20, 10, 5, 50 years, whatever it is. You are younger than me, so you've been robbed less. Uh, you've robbed these people over 50 years in some cases, maybe longer. And now you're telling them you're shit out of luck. That seems to me to be unethical and effectively a breach of contract. Uh, So I think that is a violation of their property rights. I say, if you're going to end it, you got to pay these people off. You got to pay that up, pay out uh, everything they've paid in plus interest and accounting for inflation. And that will, that will definitely take a toll on the rest of the state, rest of the government. It'll, it'll, cause you to have to end programs to have the end bureaucracies to eliminate whole departments massive cuts massive you would have to take a, a, a wrecking ball that's my image not a chainsaw a mm-hmm. wrecking ball to the state in order to accomplish this because they'll say well you're just gonna what you're doing then is you're diverting tax dollars to these people well i'm diverting it away from these state organs and giving it to the people and then those organs will disappear so the taxes will go down anyway tremendously uh and uh because the state will have no 
justification for taking as much tax money as they do. It will cause all kinds of problems, and that's good for the state. Any kind of uh, cuts and uh, any kinds of uh, demolitions, really, of various uh, agencies in the state is a good thing. Hmm. Thank you. Interesting. So what is, uh, what's it like running for president? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to ask you what, what your biggest challenge, what you think the biggest challenge is, but that's not exciting. I don't want it to be a negatively framed question. How is it? Well, at first, well, first of all, I was asked to run by the Mises caucus leadership and had never considered running for office. Uh, it wasn't something that I had any ambition over. I never had political ambition. So if I may say, I mean, mine is the only campaign that's kind of not a vanity campaign. I'm not doing this because it was like in the in my card. It wasn't in my uh, bucket list. It wasn't on my bucket list, okay? Uh, but uh, since I've been in it, it's been, uh, it's my, I dream this stuff. I'm dreaming arguments. I'm dreaming debates. I'm, I'm going over my thoughts. Uh, I, I'm just... I'm literally dreaming it. And you have to be to be prepared at any moment. You have to be prepared at all times. You got to be deeply immersed. You got to be up on the news. You must be up on theory. You must continue to read. You must read all kinds of things, including contemporary uh, events, uh, history, uh, theory. You you've got to be studying and you've got to be practicing on a reg, on a constant basis. So yeah. Yeah, it incredible. is a self-improvement pro- program for me. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's really amazing and just uh, actually humbling. It, it's yeah, it's it's a humbling experience because you're gonna <coughs> you're gonna run into a lot of hate because uh, any why hate that, why hate? Well, people that find themselves in my case find myself thrust into this arena. Uh, are going to get all kinds of criticism and and some uh, and a good deal of hate uh, because is that people, jealousy? I don't. I'm not going to venture to say what motivates it, but I can show you that the expression is definitely hatred and uh, and other things like that. Uh, I guess they think, "Who are you to presume?" Blah blah blah. I'm not presuming anything. I I was doing this because I was asked to, and I saw a a, a you know a good reason for it. And that was that the party needs to have a certain direction, needs to be represented by the maximum ideals of liberty. The country desperately needs decentralized. And we need to move towards fully private property society, society, full privatization and eradication of the state. So I think that I represent that viewpoint. Nobody else in the race is as radical as me, frankly, even though I'm the youngest in terms of libertarianism, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not. Uh, I think Chase Oliver is also a very young libertarian. Oh, that's the, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that he's physically young as well. He's but big, physically younger. He makes a big deal out of that. Like, he has more energy because he's younger. I don't know. I don't buy it. Uh, uh, I could use the Ronald Reagan line. I won't use sure. your youth and inexperience against you or something like that. Right. But, yeah. Uh, I think I'm more steeped in thought and, uh, and, uh, reading and, and, uh, writing and, uh, 
dealing with these big questions than him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he's very good at uh, he's a very polished speaker. And I'm not as polished as a speaker. You mentioned my writing and one of your promos for this. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time writing and writing is different than speaking. So I'm better at that, but I'm getting better at speaking, too. Yeah, that's really cool. No, you remind me of my uncle, John, who's a screenwriter, mm. a, a super talented screenwriter. I mean, this guy's amazing. And so same brother. My I got my dad. Uh, you're the, he's a runt of the litter. No, I'm just kidding, Dad. I love you. He's a, my dad's the musician. My uncle Rick is the political uh, speechwriter. Work mm. for Bernie, and then my uncle John is the movie writer. And oh, so wow. I come from a family of writers. My uncle John is is the strongest, and um, there's something about great writing that just gets you. And so, I love right? writing. I mean, I love it. It's like mm. it's art. It's like sex, right? Huh? Yeah, it's like sex. In a way, I don't know. It lasts longer, you know. (laughs) I write when I was writing uh, books. When I write a book, I'm I'm immersed sometimes 15 to 18 hours straight. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I don't even go to the bathroom. Right, 12 hours. And that's that's I don't know if the right word is heaven, but that is it. Right when you're in the zone. Oh, totally. I've looked up from my writing at times, and I I don't even know where I am physically in space in the world. I'm like, where the hell am I? Wow. So cool. That's amazing. No, and it's an honor to talk to you. And and that's why I was so excited too, because you know, again, I come from a family of writers. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to meet them. That'd be great. Oh man. So amazing that you said that. That's an amazing thought. Um, so I'll set that up one day, perhaps. Thank you so much. Yeah. Gosh, less closing thoughts with you here. Man, we talked about a bunch of things. Maybe um just a minute or so, if you don't mind, on foreign policy, current events. Obviously, we shouldn't be funding any of these wars. I know that's your answer. No aid to Ukraine, Israel. You know, I come from so not that side of my family, but my mom's side, yeah. conservative Jews, mm-hmm. Zionists. Okay, so you could see why my struggle, it's always been like, what? And so now more than ever, so it's tough, but yeah, I guess sure. the principle, it's a principled position to say, hey, man. Yes, and it's nothing against Israel per se or any kind of hankering or fetish or anti-fetish towards israel it's it's just about look this should be a this should be across the board regardless of what state it is now israel mm-hmm. does does get special treatment and i don't think they should i don't think any state should get our, our our special treatment i don't think we should be paying for other conflicts or other nations to do what they need to do or think they need to do or whatever uh, I just don't think it's uh, it's right for them. It's not even right. For, it's not right for us. I don't think it's right for them either. Yeah, the libertarians want to go back to a George Washington, American first, no foreign entanglements type of foreign policy rather than this middle of the 20th century alliances are supremely important type of thing, right? I'm not American. I, I never use the phrase America first because I'm, pe- I'm the individual first. Um, and primarily, if not solely. So I don't believe in any kind of like patriotism in the sense that I'd lo- I think people should have a pride of place and people do. People love their country. They love where they come from. I lo- I'm in Pittsburgh. This is my hometown where I grew up. I love it here. There's nothing wrong with that. That's different than the state making you fall in love with its prerogatives. That's a whole different story. So I'm yeah. not America first. I am the individual first and yeah. foremost. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting closing this out because 
I come from a beautiful suburb in New Jersey where there was two enormous American flags in the middle of town. Hand over the heart every day, pledge of allegiance, right? Yeah. Playing baseball. And uh, despite being in a progressive home, a somewhat conservative community. And so here I am wrestling between these two ideologies, not really, frankly, even understanding them totally. And then comes libertarianism and it says, get the flag, dude. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a process. It's a journey. I'm on it. Yeah, You're going to have fun. Uh, and I'm really, I welcome you into the fold. And one thing I would like to say is, and I, this is kind of a bit of a chastisement a little bit for, for the libertarian movement and party is let's be open and let's be welcoming to people like you. Mm -hmm. Let's open our hearts and our minds to you. Let's not be like this kind of, you know, I don't know. You're going to be on YouTube. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's not be, well, I guess I could say this on, let's not be a dick swing contest. Let's be, yeah. Yeah. Let's be more hospitable. Outward facing. And, 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 and this is, you know, the joke about libertarians being autistic, I think it's because they're so focused on what they know and they know yeah. their ideology. And it's almost like, okay, you repeat, I get it, man. Like that's what you believe, but maybe they need work on outreach. I think there's a cultural reformation within the, the movement and the party that needs to take place so that it's a less autistic, maybe. And B, I got to say this less, uh, and this is not an identity thing. It's not identity politics, but less androcentric, less male oriented you know, centric. Mm. Oh, interesting. Because we're, we, we have a very serious dearth of women, and there's a reason for that. Now, part of it has to do with women actually sort of lean towards uh, statism statism for various reasons. And, and they that. haven't historically been at the forefront of the push for right. Well, let me back that up. Initially, in the early Enlightenment, you know, historical perspective, it wasn't a it, rights emerged, but women were a secondary thought. Yeah, I mean, you had Mary Wollstonecraft and vindication of the rights of woman in 1798, but yeah, it came mm. after, and all she was trying to do was extend what the Enlightenment had brought to the masses to to women, which is perfectly good. Um, in fact, I consider her a libertarian. Uh, and so was her husband or lover. I don't know if they were ever married. William Godwin, whose child, by the way, was Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. 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 Well, doctor, listen, thank you so much for joining me. You've given me a lot to chew on and consider as I progress through my journey. So oh, thanks for it. having me, man. And let's, you know, stay in touch. And I'm so happy that you're entertaining this worldview, this, this, uh, the freedom philosophy. And I encourage yeah. you on the way, don't let the haters uh, turn you off. There are good people. I think they're all good people. I just think that we need to become more welcoming. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Total honor. Yeah. My pleasure, man. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks so much. Doctor. Adios. Bye-bye. Right.